so good to see all the faces here and um, even the kids here as well. And I don't know if you uh, saw on the way in, there was little kids' sermon sheets. It looks like most of you have them to either take notes or, uh, or draw some pictures. I've had pictures brought to me before of myself, a self-portrait. So if that's what it takes, that's, that's all right too. <laughs> so over the last couple weeks, last week, if you uh, heard the teaching and this week, it's um, all connected to this idea of being a witness and uh, lessons that we can learn from being a witness. And, and today we'll be looking at Acts 24, 25, 26, but really just uh, mainly at the end of Acts 26. And uh, if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there. And the last verse actually in Acts 26 says this, And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had, a, had not appealed to Caesar. I'm not sure if Paul heard that, but I know when I read that, I thought, man, we come to the end of all this like dialogue of Paul and before all these tribunals and before all these people. And Agrippa's conclusion is he could be set free, essentially, if if he had heard the whole story from the beginning. And as I was thinking about chapter 24 and 25, there's a lot of details in there. And the, the story is... Um, too much for us to kind of walk through completely, but I thought I'd give a little bit of a highlight. Um, if you'll remember, last week we looked at 23, and Paul was uh, being beaten, and was the Jewish people were against him. Now when we get to 24, uh, we've got Ananias, the high priest, along with the Jewish leaders, and Tertullius. They're essentially like their lawyer. They are making a case before Felix and saying... Man, this guy, essentially, uh, I wrote down here, they say in verse 5 of, of 24, we have found this man a plague. That's what they call Paul. He's like a plague. We need to get rid of this thing, right? We understand that, COVID-19. That's what they're saying. They're saying Paul is like COVID-19. Could we just get rid of him? We would all love this just to disappear, right? And so they come and they're saying that he is against them. And Paul states his case. He says, listen, I am teaching what the Old Testament is saying. I'm not against the Jewish teachings, against anything that Moses wrote or any of these details. He's like, I love my Jewish brothers and sisters. And so Felix kind of sits on the idea of what should we do with Paul. And Paul ends up um, around almost two years sitting in like house arrest or in prison. And every once in a while they bring him out and they hear his case. But Felix never does anything with his case. Eventually, Felix's term runs out and a new guy comes in, Festus. Okay, I guess they stick with people who are starting with the name F. Felix goes to Festus, okay? And when Festus arrives, Festus hears his story also. He says, okay, who is this guy Paul and what are we supposed to do with him? And the Jewish leaders again say, he is a troublemaker. We want to go to Jerusalem and bring him before the courts. And Festus says to Paul, like, Paul, what do you want? And Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. I want to be uh, tried in Roman court. Send me to Caesar. I'm going to appeal to the highest authority, to Caesar. And so Festus says, okay, if you're going to go to Caesar, I need to know what to write. Like, what are the charges? What am I going to send with you? What letter am I going to send to Caesar to say, this is what this person, this man is guilty of? 
And so chapters 25 and 26 are all trying to answer that question. Festus is trying to figure out what am I going to tell Caesar this person named Paul is actually guilty of. And, and he is totally understanding that this is, this is a problem between the Jewish people. But because Paul's a Roman citizen, it has risen up to, you know, the Roman courts. And so Festus uh, brings him before Agrippa and other Roman leaders, and he allows Paul to state his case. And again, if we would have time, um, you'd see chapter 26 is just this amazing little um, sermonette or this little um, speech that Paul gives. It starts with an introduction. It has an argument for his case, and then it ends with kind of this appeal, right? This is what Paul is kind of asking for, and, and in some cases, boldly asking for. And then at the end, that's where we come again to that verse that says, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And Paul could have been set free. And so reading these verses, man, what are the lessons that we pull out from this? And let me start by reading in chapter 26, uh, starting in verse 22. It says this, To this day, this is Paul again, this is at the end of Paul's um, little speech that he's given here for his defense and, and his argument for his case. Verse 22 says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. There is a hard side to being a witness for Christ. There can be hardship that comes along with it. And I know we have seen throughout the story both sides of it, right? We've been learning the, the hard side of it, but we've also seen like there's been some amazing things that have happened along the way. Like you think back to when we started uh, a few months ago, we talked about Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit coming down. Wouldn't, wouldn't we all have loved to be in that room when these like tongues of fire came down on people's heads? Just an amazing scene. Or Peter, when he gave his first sermon, 3,000 people get saved. That's not going to happen this morning, but that's pretty sweet, right? To be there, 3,000 people, and that was actually just men, it says, that were saved. So probably like four, maybe 5,000 people. Or you think of that like intimate moment where Paul went to go see Lydia and explain the gospel to her as she's having her own little prayer meeting or Bible study, and she gets saved, and the church is started in Philippi. There's been many stories of amazing things that God did throughout the book of Acts, but there's also been hardship. There's also been difficulty as Paul and his um, teammates have experienced difficult, hard times. And Paul knew that that was the case, right? If you remember back when Ananias first came to him, when he was blinded, when he was a new believer, Ananias came and, and said to him, listen, Paul, what Jesus has told me is that you are going to go through many, many sufferings. 
So Paul was like, okay, note to self, that's part of my story. And then later in Acts 21, the story of Agabus, we didn't really cover that one, but it was in there where Agabus says, whoever's belt this is, and it was Paul's belt, this person is going to be bound and taken, you know, by Gentiles and is going to suffer. And so Paul knew clearly that in his story, part of his life story, his journey was going to be hardship. But what about us as believers? You know, there's actually a lot of verses that talk about the hardship that we are not to be surprised by when it comes our way. It doesn't say that you're guaranteed that your life is going to be completely full of suffering, but it does tell us in a number of different places that hardship, difficulty is the road that many believers have and will take. Acts 14.22 says this, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Or Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3.2, he says this, We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And Paul says, those difficult afflictions that are coming your way, don't be rattled by them because this is the calling of the believer. But honestly, probably if we were honest, for many of us, um, suffering, especially like what we read of in, in the New Testament, often is like a foreign language to us, right? It is something that we are not familiar with. It is something that we know exists. Maybe we even know some people, you know, if it was like, Japanese language or Mandarin. We kind of know it exists. We know that some people know it. We even maybe know some people who know a few words, but I'm assuming most of us don't know Mandarin, right? We just don't fully experience it. And suffering can be kind of like that. Like we know that it's in scripture. We know that believers are called to suffer for standing up for being a witness. But for many of us, that's not the road that we've taken. Like we have been granted this amazing grace and mercy that uh, we were born here in Canada. None of us chose that, right? Or we were born in a country that was um, affluent and we were not born in, you know, a small village somewhere in India or some other place where difficulty and struggle is just regular part of the road. And uh, that's just something that God has granted to us. And so when I read a text like this, I know for myself, and I think for all of us in general, it's so needy for my soul to read this. It's so helpful for me to be reminded that suffering and hardship in life is nothing new. It's actually a normative calling of the believer. And that doesn't mean that it's easy, but it's definitely a part of it. And it's also good for us to see that in Scripture— People in the Word of God struggled with that too, right? People wrestled with that idea. I was reading this last week of the disciples, and in Luke 18, when Jesus is explaining what's going to happen at the cross, and he says, man, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be killed by the leaders. They essentially say, this cannot be. And it says in, in verse 34, it says, but they understood none of these things, And this saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, some commentators might say they didn't grasp it because they were like 
you know, they just couldn't understand it. They were blinded, kind of like the religious leaders. But most people would say they couldn't see it. They couldn't understand it because they had no place in their mind for a suffering Savior. Like, in their minds, they're thinking, how could anybody do this to Jesus? Someone who is healing He's just like a nice guy, right? He's just like your nice guy. He's going around and helping people. And in their minds, they're thinking, next stop, like king. How could there be anything different from that? And I think a lot of us get into that kind of thinking even about ourselves. Like, if I'm just like a nice person, maybe this is the Canadian way of thinking, right? If I'm just like a good Canadian, and I'm friendly to people, and I like... Even if I'm like a kind Christian, like who's really going to come against me or be like against me as a person? And we know that in scripture, sometimes it says, you know what, just be a good person and people will recognize you and the state won't come against you. But we also know that that's not always the case, is it? That the road of the believer is not always a road of comfort. And the reality of hurt in this text especially is so important because when Paul is beaten, when he is taken, you know, and people want to tear him apart, there's all kinds of descriptions of what they want to do to Paul. That can often seem like distant or so different. We're like, I don't get that at all. I've never been beaten. I don't know anybody who's actually been beaten at all. But in this story here, you've got someone who's been accused of something they haven't done. Has that ever happened to you? Probably even some of the kids can like think back of when their siblings maybe accused them of something and they know they did not do that. Can you, can you identify with being laughed at? See, Paul here is, is, they're basically pointing at the finger and laughing at him saying, Paul, you're insane, man, for believing that. Are you serious? You know the feeling of being left out or overlooked? I think those feelings that we actually see happening in the text here are things that we have experienced from a young age, maybe even into adulthood. And, and so the calling of being a witness for Christ is not just to uh, suffer hardship in terms of beatings and prisons, but it's even to be mocked, to be ridiculed. All those things that they hurt deeply still, don't they? And, and they're not experiences that we're just loving to get into or leaning into. Those are things that we want to avoid at all costs. And I think it makes it difficult even to be a witness, knowing that those things could be the things that could happen to us. And yet Paul here is a faithful witness. So is he just like superhuman? No, we know that he was just a regular man. He was, had a divine calling from Christ, but he was a regular human like you and I. And there's many different things that we could point to. The fact that he had the Holy Spirit, the fact that he knew the word of God deeply. But one of the things that you see over and over again in Paul's life is his deep connection to his identity in Christ. Always going back to who he was in Christ. And that's why um, here in 26, we didn't read it, but this is the third time that Luke is recording Paul's testimony. And, and these are like long times that he's, think of all the papyrus that had to get used, right? To write this out originally, a costly work of recording. 
Luke's like, okay, for the third time, am I going to write out Paul's testimony again? Well, it was because Paul was a changed man. And, and I think Philippians kind of succinctly ties it together in a small way. Philippians, nice, short, and sweet, it says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That was what Paul said. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Basically, whatever happens in my life, everything that I have is tied to the person of Jesus. Everything, even if I lose my life to die, it's gain because everything I have, everything I need is all wrapped up in Christ Jesus. And so he was not a superhuman but he was a man that was continually reminded of who he was in Christ. And, and this is a reminder for us. Um, as we stand up for Christ and as we witness in our lives the things that we do, the things that we um, choose to value or to discard, or when we, in word, talk to people about Jesus Christ, the, the difficulty of being um, through hardship and being a witness in that way um, needs to always be reminded of who am I in Christ. And, and I don't know about you, but I just need constant reminders of that because I just forget that or I begin to fear more the, the hardship than I do appreciate and love the grace and the relationship that I have with Christ. So this hardship grows and grows and grows and becomes so big. And in this like position in Christ is just not quite big enough to overshadow it. And so I need reminding through like song and scripture reading and the breaking of bread. So there's hardship that comes with it. But on the other side, there's also hope. And we see this right in the story here. And let's look again at the text. Starting in verse 26, it says this. For the kings know about these things. So this is Paul again talking to the, to the group there. For the kings know about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And you persuade. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, and, and Agrippa gets exactly what he's doing. He's saying like, Paul, are you trying to convince me to become a Christian? And Paul's like, absolutely. I have hope that even right here in this court session, people can come to faith. There's this hope that he has. And, and just imagine the picture. We didn't read it, but it talks about how Agrippa came in with Festus and with all these other Roman leaders and these like military people. Like Paul is standing in front of people in the Roman world who had no earthly needs, right? These are people that are well-to-do in leadership, living in probably great Roman villas or homes. They got like gardens, they got servants, what do they need? And it got me thinking this week even of the people that we live around or the people that we work with. And we may look at them and, and look at their lives and think like, what do they need? Like they have beautiful homes, they have nice cars, great clothes, they have happy marriages, maybe they have great kids. It can almost seep into our mind 
Like, would they be perfectly fine without Jesus even? It seems like they have everything that they need. And that is what Paul was looking at right in front of him. These people that had everything that they needed. And yet he calls them to come to Christ. And our proclaiming or our witnessing, our being a witness for Christ with our lives and our words is more than just, you know, telling people to come to read the Bible. It's more than just come to Citizens Church. It's actually a greater vision for their lives, more than just the things that they have or the things that they enjoy in this world. It's a greater vision. And one of the the great passages that kind of captures it in in poetic imagery is Psalm chapter 1. We won't read it, but in Psalm chapter 1, David writes this psalm and he says, The righteous person, the person that follows God, the person that knows God, the vision for this person is like a tree that is planted by a river and is flourishing and it's bearing fruit in season. Essentially, it is doing what it has been designed to do. And God has made us as people to, he's designed us to live and to to be in this world in a certain way. He has a vision for us. And when we live outside of that, we don't really hit the mark. It's like if you had a nail that you wanted to put into a board, what would you use? Probably use a hammer, right? But if you started with like a laptop, it probably wouldn't do too well. Probably the laptop, I don't even know if it would budge the nail in at all, right? You'd probably go right through the laptop. Or if you spilt some juice or something on the floor, rather than getting a mop, you grabbed your brother's t-shirt or like a jacket or something. That might actually even soak up some of the juice, but it's probably not going to do as good of a job as just a mop or a cloth or something, right? So there are, we get it in, in the world around us, there are things that we use that have purpose, and when you step outside of that, they cease to be what they should really be. And some things even get close to what they should be. So a jacket, you might actually start sopping things up, but it's really not doing the job that it was meant to do. And so we as people also were created by God to flourish. We were made by God to live in relationship with him so that our lives are are not just the accumulation of things or happiness or enjoyment. They are actually meant to be lived in a way that God has made us to live. And so Paul here, you can see, is willing and is hopeful. And he says, Look at that again in verse 29. He says, whether it's short or long, like whether it happens right now on the spot or whether it takes, I don't know, months, years, Paul has this hope because when we're witnesses, it is ultimately it's God that does the work, right? God is the one who has to do the work. Luke 19.10 says this, the son of man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. So the seeking and the saving of the lost is actually a work that Jesus does. It's a work that Christ does. And and we are, uh, like Paul, we are witnesses. We are the ones, maybe this summer, have any of you had like a a backyard fire? Or like uh, maybe you went camping. Uh, If you got the chance to go camping, you made a fire, right? You start by maybe like crumpling up some paper, or maybe you put some kindling around it and then a little bit bigger. I don't know if you guys do like the teepee system or maybe you do the log cabin. 
I prefer the log cabin, right, where you're stacking them up that way. You can do all those things, right? You put the paper, you put the sticks, maybe even you put some little gas on there. I never do that, but you could. But ultimately, what are you missing? What do you need still to get that going? A spark or like a match, right? You need some sort of ignition to get that fire started. And so we as, as witnesses, we put the paper down, we put the sticks down. Sometimes our little fires look like a mess, right? They're just like, wow, I didn't do that very well. Other times we think they're perfectly neat and they're perfect. But ultimately what we have a confidence and a hope in is that Christ will work. that The Holy Spirit will actually start a spark and a fire will begin. And whether that is short or whether that is long, that is up to God. It's not up to us. It's not up to us whether we build a great little fire or we build a terrible little fire, but we are faithful because we know that God is going to be faithful. So when we stand up for Christ, we shouldn't be surprised that hardship, various forms of difficulty could come our way. It shouldn't surprise us when that happens, but we should also be hopeful people that in the midst of that hardship, or even in the midst of smooth sailing, that God is faithful. God is saving people through our witnesses, however it comes out. And so our, our circumstances don't dictate what the end result is going to be. So COVID-19 does not have the final word on the, on the work that God is doing around us. Our own personal ups or downs do not have the final word of what God is doing around us. We need to be hope-filled people so that we can keep moving forward. So whether we live or die, everything is Christ. And so we can gladly say these verses from Matthew 28 that are so familiar to us. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much. Thank you for this time that we have been able to have together to, to worship you and to glorify your name. Lord, we pray that you have been honored and magnified as we've been here together, we thank you for this testimony of Paul as a faithful witness, Lord, even through hardship, even through ridicule, but also hopeful and uh, just trusting in you in, in the circumstances he was in. And uh, Lord, we too just want to trust you with our lives. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to build us up and encourage us as a body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.